they're more willing to push the boundaries and they're they're watching it younger and what we're seeing now especially people in their 20s is that all this porn has caused a hell of a lot of health issues especially in men when i was 20 years old the rate and this is going back 25 years or so the rate of erectile dysfunction among men who were 20 was between two and four percent one of the latest stats i've seen post pandemic is depending on what's what you're looking at as far as a study it's 20 to 25 percent how do young men like us optimize our lives in a way that lets us achieve success and meaning come with me as i interview top performers and delve into key areas of life Habits, finance, psychology, health, relationships, work, creativity, and business. I boil the ocean of men's advice into usable wisdom in this podcast to give you the answers. My name is Blake Bottrell, and this is The Distilled Podcast. My guest today has spent the last 10 years talking about the addiction that nobody wants to, porn. Much like the opioid crisis that has played out over the last 25 years, porn addiction is following a remarkably similar trajectory. Addicts are initially shunned from society only for it to later be revealed there are much larger forces at play. A recovered addict himself, he's written four books, his latest titled I'm Reading This Porn Addict I'm Reading This Book About Porn Addiction for a Friend, and he has coached hundreds of clients through the recovery of porn addiction or betrayal trauma. Josh Shea Welcome to the show on your 3500th day of sobriety. Thank you very much, Blake. I appreciate that. I wanted to just sort of kick things off with you sitting in jail and deciding to write a book. Why then and and why you? Well, um, it was it was several different things. First was um, you have to understand that between the time that I got arrested um, and the time that I went to jail was about two years. When I got arrested, I was a very, very sick person um, with my addictions, not just pornography, but also alcohol. In the two years that led up to all the, all the court stuff going through, I went to two different rehabs. I spent thousands of uh, dollars on therapy. I read everything I could. Um, the person who went to jail was a very different person than the guy who got arrested because I had spent, it, it was uh, 22 months uh, between those those things. So um, I was a journalist for 25 years before any of this happened. And even before that, you know, going back to being a little kid, people said that I was a good writer. It seemed to be the only thing everybody could agree upon with me. Um, so writing is a very natural thing for me. In the uh, two years between being arrested and serving my six months, I tried to find mainstream material about pornography addiction. And keep in mind, we're going back to 2014 now. Um, there, there were more bookstores back then, but there were still no, there were still no books about pornography addiction. You had books about addiction in general. I could read all I wanted to read about my alcoholism, but there was nothing that was simple there for the average guy, the average gal. I thought to myself during this time, as I'm getting better, um, maybe jail would be the time that I could write about my story, but not just write about my story, but also include some in real information about pornography addiction, the stuff that I had been learning, some statistics that were out there at the time, even though there wasn't much. You know, I'm the kind of guy who can read the New England Journal of Medicine and get something out of it and enjoy it, much like I know that there are crazy people out there who can read Shakespeare and enjoy it. And I thought that if I could take what I, what I could boil down in these academic papers, take my experience, serve as a warning to others, and present it in a somehow entertaining sort of way, that uh, maybe I could do some good in this world. And when I got to jail, uh, it was very surprising for me. Um, everybody was so into the book. And that's actually where I started maybe even getting the idea of coaching, because after I got the trust of people, 
they would come up to me and start saying, can I talk to you about, you know, my porn use? Can I talk to you about some sexual things about myself? And I recognize that there are just so many people out there who need this help. And maybe, maybe if somebody could read a book that I put out or whatever I was going to do at that point, and remember, we're going back almost 10 years, um, what could I put out there that maybe somebody wouldn't end up where I did. Somebody wouldn't end up in the same situation. Somebody wouldn't go down that rabbit hole, wouldn't get as sick as I did if there was some kind of earlier intervention. And uh, that's why I decided I wanted to put that book out. And after I put that book out, uh, I got so much attention from uh, family members of porn addicts, mostly wives and girlfriends. That's where I learned about betrayal trauma. And I said, well, I've got to write a book about this. This is completely the other side of it. And this is actually really interesting to me, too. And I know my wife dealt with some of this. So I decided to put that book out um, with, a, with a partner who was a... Uh, marriage and family therapist, and that ended up becoming a bestseller. And then it was like, oh, okay, I, I guess this is going to be my thing now. The podcast started calling. I started going and doing speaking engagements. And uh, then the pandemic hit, and I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? Not only do they not want me at the auditorium, they've locked the auditorium because everybody's stuck at home. And, uh, a, a friend of mine who was a doctor said, you know what I think you should do? I think you should consider coaching. I know you're never going to go back to school to become a therapist. I know you don't have the patience to do that, but you have so much experience. You tell a good story. You can make people talk. Why don't you try being a coach? Because you have everything else you need. Just go and get... So in the early days of the pandemic, I did several online courses to become certified and since then, it's been my full-time job, and I absolutely love it. So just take me back to sort of the precursor to coaching as the... Is it other inmates that are coming up to you that are talking yeah. about... Yeah, these, okay. are, these are guys who are, you know, really unsavory characters who are in there for drugs or kidnapping or spousal abuse or armed robbery, the kind of people who... You generally try to avoid in real life, but if you're stuck in a small room with them, they can be fascinating to talk to. And when you when you uh, can sit down and talk to them one on one and get their get their trust, um, that's when I realized that maybe I could help people with this in a way that I wasn't helped. Yeah, that's got to give you a confidence to know that you can pretty much coach anybody that comes across your path right as long as somebody wants to be coached it's easy you know the, the toughest people to coach are the men who usually between about 45 and 60 whose wives are forcing them to come talk to me but i'm actually pretty good with them too because at the end of the day all we're going to do is have a conversation and people learn pretty fast that I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I don't care what you looked at. Um, it, I know it doesn't make you a pervert. I know it doesn't make you a freak. I know that you were sick because I was sick too. It's not a reflection of your character to be an addict. It's a reflection of circumstances that created this storm. And I give anybody credit who steps up and wants to change that, even if their wife has to drag them to it. Yeah, and, and going off of the not being sick and the no. So I'm coming at this. I, as I was doing research for the podcast, stumbled across uh, an interview between um, a guy named Chris Williamson. I don't know if you're familiar with the Modern Wisdom podcast at all. Um, but he had a, a guest on, um, Dr. K, who's uh, more of a... Um, uh, deals more with sort of the the gaming sphere and the nerdier side of guys talking through um, some of the internal research that they did for a uh, paper that they were looking to publish in the next year or so. And they looked at a, a multivariate study of um, correlations between porn addiction and um, other factors. And the number one factor that they came to didn't have anything to do with sexual perversion or anything like that at all. The actual top correlating factor was uh, the amount of meaninglessness you felt in your life. For people who have, and 
video games, pornography, sex, gambling, food. These are addictions from a family called process addictions. It's not chemical, you know, your heroin, your alcohol, cigarettes. Process addictions, and from the uh, what I have read and experienced myself and have seen in my own personal clients, is that the biggest you're, the biggest reason that people use is because of a lack of control and a lack of power in their life. Because if you think about it, nobody on that screen is ever going to say, whoa, no, tonight I have a headache, or whoa, you're not nearly attractive enough for me. You know, they're not going to say, hey, you didn't take out the trash, or you're late to work, or, you know, what? you got a bad uh, grade on this test. They're never going to bother you, and you can see whatever you want. You want two white girls, a black guy, and a, you know, Spanish little person? I know you can find that out there. You want, you know, six people and them be being doing some, uh, you know, story from a fairy tale? You can find that. You can find, there's so much pornography out there these days, you can find whatever you want out there. So in essence, when you sit down in front of that computer, when you sit down in front of that phone, you become the master of the sexual universe. And that is a very, very powerful place to be. I was fascinated by this concept that you talked about a couple times, that the sort of shift in demographics of who is now acquiring porn addiction is changing over time because initially so much of pornography was specifically tailored to uh, like middle-aged white guys. And that was the first spike that is seen in porn addiction. And now they've sort of plateaued and now uh, other demographics, whether it be women or people of color, just those statistics now catching up. And that's like a fascinating factor that I'd never thought about. No, absolutely. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but I remember going to bookstores, going to newsstands, and you would see all of the adult magazines. And pretty much there might be one that was for African Americans, there might be one that was for women, and then you have 26 for the straight white guy. That they knew back then, 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s, that they could trust that the straight white guy would buy porn. That's why they marketed to, marketed it to us. We would go to the newsstands. We would go to the adult bookstores. We would go to the adult theaters. But you weren't getting women. You weren't getting a lot of people of color. And another area that you've seen explosion in is religious people. Well, they don't want to be caught dead walking into an adult bookstore, but hey, now that they're behind their, you know, their closed doors in their house, nobody can see what they're doing online. And that's what's making it very attractive to other uh, people beyond straight white men. But it's also that porn is so much cheaper to produce these days. You know, you and I sitting here tomorrow, we can cast, we can film, we can edit, and we can distribute a porn movie all while not being in the same room, not being in the porn movie, but we can do all of this very easily and have it out there and, and have spent a very small amount of money. If it doesn't cost a lot to produce, you can narrow it to a specific audience. That's why you get so many weird genres on adult sites these days, is because you can make money off of all of them. And that's what has to be remembered ultimately, is that the pornography industry is there for the money. Bottom line, that's it. And in talking cheapness of production or uh, lowered production um, requirements, Obviously, over the past three years, we've seen sort of an explosion in um, models, OnlyFans. DIY of, porn. Yeah, like something to the effect of uh, like one and a half million additional OnlyFans creators or something in the last three years. Three, since the, uh, the, the, last, the last stat I saw uh, from earlier this year was the CEO said that they had 3.2 million people making content and if you go back to january 1st 2020 there was about 300,000 people so in three years and we can you know thank the pandemic for this in just over three years 
OnlyFans by itself. Not talking about the other copycat sites, not talking about those other cam sites, just OnlyFans added 2.9 million porn stars to our world. That's uh that's a major shift in in sexual dynamics. That's a major shift in the the uh way that young people especially think about nudity, think about sexuality, think about the display of it, think about the commodification of it. You know, when I was in high school, way back when, um, if there was a Polaroid of the sexy football player quarterback and the his, you know, head cheerleader girlfriend at the beach and him in his little shorts, her in her little bikini... In, in 1994, that would have been passed around like it was a joint. Everybody would have wanted to see that friggin' thing. But nowadays, 15 years old, 16 years old, everybody has an Instagram. Most people are half naked in some of the photos on their Instagram. It's just not a big deal. And when you start to uh, change society's views and make it more liberal towards nudity, more liberal towards showing your body, charging to show your body, what's the big difference for a, a girl or a guy on the last day of their 17th year wearing a you know bikini top and the first day of their 18th year dropping that bikini top? Well, frankly, it can be thousands of dollars if they wanna if they wanna market it correctly. And if they don't have any hang-ups, they don't have the hang-ups that a lot of us raised in the 70s and 80s do. That's what we're going to see happen. And keep in mind that the people who were furloughed, the people who were laid off during the pandemic, they were service workers mainly, waitresses, bartenders, retail people. These are usually younger people, gregarious, outgoing people, people who know how to hustle for a dollar, and people who also care about the way that they present themselves. So it was like a perfect storm because suddenly they're stuck at home They've got to pay rent, they've got to pay for food, they've got to pay for whatever, and all of a sudden now you can work an hour or two a day, you know, it's not like you're a stripper on stage, it's not like you're, you know, you're a prostitute out turning tricks, you're doing this from the comfort of your own bedroom or living room, and the only people who have to know are the ones that you let know that you're doing this until you're found out, but yeah, absolutely, the uh, the do-it-yourself porn industry really came of age during the pandemic. It was like, you know, peanut butter and jelly. They just went together so well. The unfortunate part that nobody likes to tell those girls or women is that uh, the reality is you're not going to be making thousands of dollars and you're closer to making $150 a month for the 10 guys that maybe went to your high school or whatever it is that exactly still have exactly. you on Facebook that's, or whatever that's it is. what you find out, you know, it's that, you know, uh, it is a tiny, tiny percentage, like the top two tenths of 1% make over a thousand dollars a month. Um, because the, it just got saturated, you know, okay. That one girl from high school is naked, but what happens when there are 15 girls from high school naked and you've got to decide who you're going to purchase and look at that's it, it got oversaturated. And that's why I think that, you know, they say there are 3.2 million creators out there. Now, I wonder if that's more like three to 3.2 million accounts of creators, because a lot of the women who I spoke with and a lot of the men who I spoke with, uh, when I wrote my third book, which was called Porn in the Pandemic, you know, they talked about getting into it for the money and uh, not many of them are doing it anymore. And if they are, a lot of them are not doing it for the money or it's just a part time side hustle, you know, that that makes a few dollars. Uh, very few people got rich off of taking their clothes off during the pandemic. You've been doing this for 10 sort of years now. What's the biggest um dynamic shift in sort of cultural relation to pornography over the last three years, like during the pandemic and otherwise, other than uh, the proliferation of OnlyFans accounts? That's a good thing. I think it's just the general um, attitude of younger people towards pornography. Every year it gets more liberal every and open. Every year it gets... Uh, 
they're more willing to push the boundaries and they're they're watching it younger and what we're seeing now especially people in their 20s is that all this porn has caused a hell of a lot of health issues especially in men when i was 20 years old the rate and this is going back 25 years or so uh, the rate of erectile dysfunction among men who were 20 was between 2 and 4%. One of the latest stats I've seen post-pandemic uh, is, depending on what's, what you're looking at as far as a study, it's 20 to 25%. Now, you can't tell me in 25 years that this has to do with vaccines or the food we're eating or, or autism or anything else. It, it, this is because we now have high-speed internet, and for the last three years, so, so much porn has been produced, and it has become so normalized, because whether you know it or not, you know somebody making pornography and selling it out there. Um, maybe they're not marketing it to you, but you know somebody out there who's making it. And uh, society accepts that now. 40 years ago, that you, you would have been called all kinds of dirty names. You would have been seen to be as dirty as a prostitute, as disgusting and depraved as a stripper. There was just something wrong with you. And I don't think most people under 40 think that way anymore. And I think that's really changed in the last three, four years. Yeah, you used to have to go to whatever the little valley next to Hollywood was called. And, and now... Yeah, San Fernando Valley. Yeah, there you go. Now there's uh, any... Hand, like we're talking about any handful of people from your high school that uh, have just picked it up as a, as a hobby. We're coming up on yeah. November. What do people get wrong about NoFap as a concept? The story that I have heard, and I've heard this a couple different places, so I tend to believe it, is that the true origin of NoFap was a bunch of guys on Reddit who tried to mimic the episode of Seinfeld called The Contest, which was a masturbation contest between the main characters who could hold out the longest. I've heard that's the growth of it, and that's fine. <clears throat> that's cool. I think that there were a lot of guys out there, especially in maybe underdeveloped countries, because I know how big this is in places like India or places like Brazil, uh, where maybe they don't have other options for treatment. Um, if you are truly an addict, just doing this strong male beat your chest, we can do this together, rah, rah. And it does get a little bit misogynistic. It does get a little bit toxic when you get to the edges of it. But it's not based in science. What a lot of these guys don't recognize is that they feel that they're looking at, whether they're an addict or not, they're looking at porn is the only problem. <clears throat> looking at porn and addiction is a symptom of a bigger problem. I didn't look at porn just because I liked the naked ladies. I looked at porn because it gave me this rush of dopamine. It gave me a rush of oxytocin. It gave me a rush of serotonin, of endorphins. The last 10 years of using, I can't tell you 99% of the time what I was looking at five minutes after I was done. I talked to, when we were talking to my clients, both men and women, None of them really want to look at porn. They wish they could hit a button and get their dopamine, but that's how they get those chemicals that once you become addicted to them, it has its claws in you. That's the thing that most people have to recognize. And the guys in NoFap who are genuinely addicts, just having a bunch of guys spout lines from the Matrix to you about red pills is not going to actually do anything to help you as a person. You know, recovery, stopping your addictive behavior is just the first part of recovery. In my coaching and what I, what worked for me and what I've seen work for so many people is that once you can get that behavior somewhat under control, and it's pretty easy to reduce somebody's use 50 to 75% the first month. There are a lot of little techniques that can be done, especially if the person is serious about it. 
But the bigger question is, why did you start using porn in the first place? And even more important than that, the reasons why you started using porn, that trauma, <clears throat> how did you make your decisions in life based on that trauma? How did that trauma shape you into the person you are today? Because if you can then get rid of that trauma, process that trauma, work through that trauma, dude, you got a clean slate. You can become whoever the fuck you want to be at that point. And that's, to me, the final part of the recovery process is where we say, who do you want to be? How are we going to get you there? And if that's, I want to make a million bucks, cool. If that's, I just want to be a nicer person, fantastic. But none of that is encapsulated in NoFap. NoFap is a bunch of stories. It's a bunch of guys trying to act macho. It's a bunch of guys who want to worship at the altar of Andrew Tate, even though he's one of the biggest misogynistic, toxic guys out there in this arena. It's a bunch of guys who don't want to look in the mirror and see what the real problem is and deal with it in real scientific medical terms. They just want to be the tough guy. They just want to be the cool guy. And really, when you look at the group of them who, who subscribe to NoFap, those are not descriptors that you use with those people, whether they're healthy or not. What are some of those little techniques? Little techniques for... For reducing use in the first month or so. Oh, well, it's, I mean, first of all, is understanding why you're using, or not even why you're using, but the circumstances of use. There are patterns that a lot of people don't see. Maybe it's easy to say, okay, I do it every night in my bedroom. Well, it's not that simple for a lot of people. Maybe it has to do with the last person you talk to. Maybe it has to do with the, the house is empty. Maybe it has to do with the weather is bad. Maybe it has to do with you've had a bad day at work. You have to figure out why it is and when it is that you're using so you can start to make those changes. We have plenty of habits in our lives that are very difficult to change. You know, somebody who has a cup of coffee first thing in the morning when they get out of bed, try to take that coffee away from them. They don't want it taken away because that's a habit. That's what they're dependent on. That's what they know. And a lot of people, whether they recognize it or not, have these kinds of habits. When it comes to young people, I can, I would bet 80 to 90% of my clients under 30 start their uh, pornography sessions, self-pleasuring sessions by looking at TikTok. And many of them, when I first start talking to them, are like, this is just what happens. I start looking at TikTok and... Wouldn't you know, some, some jiggly girl or some buff guy comes on there, and, and then I, I see another, and I just, I end up looking at pornography. And it's like, uh, do you see the pattern there? Do you see a pattern of, okay, let's be honest with ourselves. Do you know those times when you sit down with TikTok, if you're going to use or if you're not going to use? And most of the time when they think about it, they recognize, they know exactly when they're going to use. Another thing is to, uh, another excuse that you get among a lot of people is, I'm, I just do it because I'm bored. That's like, have you looked around this world? If you don't know how to make an origami swan, if you don't know how to play the trumpet, if you haven't called your grandma or your mom in the last week, if you haven't written a screenplay, if you haven't gone for a walk, if you haven't done any of a million things, you can't be bored. Saying that you're bored is just the permission slip. It's the key. If this was Willy Wonka, it's the golden ticket. It's what allows you to use pornography, but not feel so bad about it. You know, I'd like to do something. I wish I could figure something to do. This, I'm, I'm just, well, I don't want to use porn, but I'm bored. There's nothing else to do. And that, that's, that's a whole big heap of stinky horseshit. And you, people need to be called out on that. People need to be called out on that. And that's why, I, with my clients... I see a lot of people one time and I don't see them again because I'm a little too in their face, I'm a little too harsh, and they're, I'm a little too blunt. And then there are a lot of people who are like, you are exactly what I need. I need somebody who's going to point out my own shit to me because it's a blind spot. And one of the things that with some of these people, 
I introduced them to the concept of Johari's Window, which is a model that is all about blind spots. Because there are a lot of times where we simply cannot see what's going on around us because we're in the eye of the storm and we need someone else who isn't a partner, who isn't a sibling, who isn't a friend that's close to us to come in and say, no, dude, this is your, you're telling yourself a story. And uh, that's how we get through life. We tell ourselves stories. We are the stories we tell ourselves. We are the stories we want to believe. You, on a good day, are not the conquering hero you think you are. And you, on a bad day, are not the piece of shit you think you are. You know, you are good and bad. You are a complex human being. And, I, you know, don't judge people based on their best day or their worst day. Just because a guy goes running into a building and saves a baby doesn't mean he's not still an asshole when he comes out of that building. He just did something good in that moment. People are complex creatures, and we need to be able to um, accept what other people see that we may not see and be able to recognize it may be true and then to make adjustments based upon that. How do we sort of square that circle around boredom given that obviously there's endless number of things to do um, in society today to not be bored but some of the what i'll call lowest friction dopamine to the highest levels is achieved quickly through unlimited access to porn now absolutely absolutely but there are a lot of bad ways you can get it i mean there are a lot of good ways you can get it it depends what are you are you an addict if you're not an addict well then it should be a lot easier for you. If you are an addict, what you need to recognize is that it really, it's not about the sexy people doing the naked things. It's about something else. And if you look at Patrick Carnes, who's kind of the godfather of study in this area, uh, he has a, his groundbreaking study, even before we had high-speed internet, was called The Making of a Sex Addict. And what he found was he interviewed hundreds of men um, and found that those who were porn or sex addicts, more than 70% had some kind of childhood trauma that was connected to physical abuse. More than 80% had some kind of trauma that was connected to sexual abuse. And more than 90% had some kind of trauma that was connected to uh, mental, emotional, or spiritual abuse. When you do the algebra on this, it's like 99.7% of men have some kind of trauma based on the pornography. It is a response from the body to handle stress, to handle anxiety. I became a porn addict at 12 years old. The reasons that I used at 13 and 14 were not the reasons I used when I was 23, were not the reasons I used when I was 33. But what you learn early on is, if I look at this stuff, I feel a lot better. You may not even understand the chemical issue of it. I, I feel a lot better. And looking at this stuff can make a bad day okay. And it can make an okay day pretty damn good. This, I like this. This feels good. I'm going to keep doing this. And it's not until you're well into it that you realize you're hooked on it. And it's not that you're hooked on boobs, it's not that you're hooked on butts, it's that you're hooked on the chemicals. Just like a gambling addict is hooked on the chemicals. Just like a food addict is hooked on the chemicals. You know, porn addiction doesn't take place between the crotch any more than food addiction takes place in the stomach. It all takes place in the brain. That's where the hard work has to be done. You told your lawyer that you didn't want to know where the anonymous tip came from that landed you in jail. Um, mm -hmm. It ended up being for uh, sort of solicitation of a minor through uh, a site akin to Omegle. I don't know if it exactly that, but the the concept is there is that obviously everybody knows that there are a lot of 16-year-olds uh, that look like 25-year-olds now, and, and that's unfortunately just sort of a thing that happens. But you talk about that moment a little bit of a in a 
positive light now almost as it sort of is this new chapter in your life and come to Jesus moment for lack of a better mm -hmm. term there. Is there ever a thought to retroactively go back and almost reach out and, and thank that person instead? No, no, I don't want to know who nailed me. I don't want to know how I have heard different uh, theories. Uh, some of them I can understand make more sense than others, but it's not going to do any good for me 10 years later to find out what happened. Because while I can say it was great and it changed my life, I can also say, is there a better way you could have handled this? Is Could you not have, you know, perhaps dragged me through the media mud like it happened? Was there another way to do this? You know, I am so grateful in, about who I am today. I'm so much happier and healthier than I've ever been. Um, but I really don't want to revisit that. It's much like when asking, you know, I've been on, like I told you, you know, probably 500 podcasts at this point. I've talked with, you know, hosts who were like, oh my God, you didn't get nearly enough time. You should have been in jail for five, six, seven years. They should have thrown away the key. And I've talked to people who were like, dude, you didn't know. You have no history. They found nothing except for this one person you were talking with on your computer. Shouldn't you have just got a slap on the hand and move forward? Well, I've had to decide with that debate that the judge gave me exactly the time that I should have. No more, no less. I'm cool with what the judge gave me because that's the only person that mattered in this. There's a lot of this that uh, I have had to exercise uh, what we call radical acceptance. I can't control the situation. You know, whether it's justified or unjustified is not for me to decide. And all I can do is move forward trying to be the best person I can be. And I hope whatever happens when you die, whether heaven, hell, whatever any other religions believe or spirituality believes, I just hope when all is said and done that I've helped more people than I've hurt. That's really what I'm after now. And I am trying to create less people who are like me. If I could fall into that trap because I was ill, that I did not exercise the judgment of, hey, this could be a teenager, maybe I should ask, maybe I should find out, you know, instead of just going along with talking to her, um, if I can get one other person to do that, they won't have to go through what I did, but that person on the other side of the computer won't go through it either. And that's why I'm out there now. I'm trying to create, I'm trying to be the, the word of caution, the cautionary tale. I'm trying to be the guy who, if this can happen to me, I own two businesses. I was a local politician. I was very well known in my community. Um, I'm the last person that you would have said, wife, kids, house, everything going well for him, that I was this guy. If I can be this guy, anybody can be this guy. And for 99% of the time of my addiction, I never would have let it get to the point it got to. But I got so critically ill at the end that, you know, it's amazing I didn't drive my car into a house because I was drunk all the time because I was just so sick, and I, I tell you, Blake, I don't know if, if that hadn't happened, or if something hadn't happened in the next six months to a year from when I did get arrested, I don't know if I'd be here today talking to you. I think I was on a fast track to death. So yes, I'm grateful it happened in that way. I'm also grateful that it got me away from those addictions. It got me into rehab. It got me into learning about this stuff. It forced me to wake up. It forced me to look at my past. I'm grateful for all of that, but I don't need to go and dredge it up every day and, and dissect it and figure out what could be better. Um, it, it, it was what it was. I accept it, and I am very happy and pleased with where I am and what I'm doing now. Of course, the... Uh everybody's favorite part of the story is is always the redemption arc has there been a moment for you oh i don't know there's a lot of people who know me who still like that part where i got thrown in jail 
I was not a pleasant person to be around for many, many years. When you talk about that, you know, I would have run into the building to save the baby because I would have known that somebody would have taken a picture of me coming out. I wasn't there to save the baby. I was there for my own reasons. Altruism was number five or six on my list of reasons I did things. It was about my narcissism. It was about my ego. Um, I was a miserable prick to be around. You know, to me, recovery is not necessarily, I don't drink anymore. I don't look at porn anymore. Recovery for me is recovering from being this miserable prick who I was and being somebody who people can genuinely love and like, being someone who people can count on, being someone people can depend on, being somebody who is a giver, not a taker. To me, that's what recovery is about. Stopping the porn and alcohol is just a minor piece of that. Tell me a story about a climate okay. of yours that, that really sort of drilled this second half of your journey home here well i'll tell you it's actually uh more than just I, I mean i've got a hell of a lot of stories but i'll tell you what i look forward to the most is when i see somebody on my schedule for the first time like i said a lot of people don't come to see me a second time because i'm not their cup of tea but um, I demand that people do a video call with me, whether it's Zoom or, or FaceTime or whatever. It has to be video because about 80% of our uh, body, 80% of communication is our body language and has nothing to do with what we say. So I need to see the people. And a lot of times, whether it's a guy or a girl, doesn't matter the age, they show up and they're just tense because they've never talked about the fact they use porn. They've never said the words out loud, I masturbate to this stuff. Scares the hell out of them. Like, I remember going to my first, my, my rehab, and being, oh my God, what am I going to say to these people? I'm a freak. They've never seen anything like me before. And then when I, when they're there, and I was like, okay, so what's the deal? Um... And yeah, we all like looking at pictures of naked ladies and naked guys. I get it. Don't worry about that. I don't care what you looked at. When they understand that I'm not going to judge them. I'm not, I don't care what they looked at. I know it doesn't reflect upon them. I know that there were a lot of other reasons that they are in front of me than just the fact that they looked at pornography. When they get that, when they feel like for the first time ever, I can talk openly and safely about this with somebody. You just see their entire body language change. And I'll be the first to say my first initial session, we're not going that deep. We're not solving the world's problems, much less, you know, your problems. We're scratching the surface. But there are so many people who just scratching the surface, you look at them at the end and they're like, I've, I've, I've never felt like this. I've, I feel like there's a thousand pound weight off of my shoulders. And some of them will say this, that this is, you know, I, I went to a therapist and I could barely talk about this. Maybe it was because they were in the same room. Maybe it's because I went through it as well. I don't know exactly what each person's reason is, but to see them relax and feel okay about themselves for probably the first time in a very, very long time, that is freaking rewarding because I remember the moment that happened to me. And the fact that I can help facilitate that feeling for someone else, yes, I hope they get perfectly clean, I hope they have a successful, wonderful life, but just that one magic moment in the first session where it's, <sighs> yeah, yeah, I did use this stuff and I'm... You know, it, it made me feel shame and it made me feel, yeah, okay, I, I get it. I understand. I was there, you know, and, and there are reasons this this happened. Here's here's some of my story and I, I'll share some very, you know, embarrassing personal things. And that makes them feel better. It makes them feel not alone. If you're going to deal with somebody and talk to somebody who is an addict, and I don't care what it is, it comes with a lot of shame. And if they can feel safe talking to you, that's the biggest hurdle right there. Do they feel safe? Will they not be mocked? Will they not be shamed? Will they not be brought down the way that other people have and the way they have to themselves? That's that's amazing, man. Yeah, there's something powerful to be said 
for the difference between empathy and empathy and sympathy, I think, um, two things that don't get talked about enough. And uh, one of them feels very different when you're in it. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, it's kind of funny because in the early days of my recovery in taking a ton of different assessments and, you know, personality tests and whatnot, um, one of the things that was found to be lacking in my life was empathy. And I'll tell you, the first four or five years of recovery, it was harder to develop empathy than it was to quit alcohol and porn. Because I had kept so many walls up, I did not want to feel for, I didn't want to feel for myself, much less for you. Um, that was, that was very hard to develop. And eventually I, I figured out a little trick to it. And now I can do empathy very well. And I can teach people how to be more empathetic. Um, it's really, a lot of this is just sharing my story of getting better, sharing statistics, sharing, okay, here's the likelihood of this versus this based on the data we know. This doesn't have to do with God. Nothing wrong with God. This doesn't have to do with you being a pervert or liking naked people. You know, and that's a completely separate issue if you want to go down that values road. I don't go down the values or morals road. I try to look at what do we know about the science? What do we know about the math in this? This is, I, I use a lot of techniques of behavioral economics to predict what's going to happen and to try to change people's routines. You know, everybody is an individual, but follow enough people and you'll see patterns and you can largely predict behavior. You've got a, a TikTok video now that has somewhere close to like nine and a half million views or something like that. Changed um, my professional life pandemic. when that came out. <laughs> um, it's a video that essentially is just you talking to someone who is potentially an addict and you're addressing it through the idea of your friend is sending you this because they're worried about you and scrolling through the comments obviously there's a handful of them that are just in jest and yeah, think it's a joke but I i'm sure there's absolutely a non-zero amount of response that came from that of people really reaching out looking for hope what Tell me the story of how uh, that changed things and sort of some of the outcomes that came from that. Well, you know what's funny is me being, again, a guy in my mid-40s, um, my kids were on TikTok. I looked at TikTok and was like, oh my God, this is just ridiculous. Um, I want nothing to do with this thing the way that I wanted nothing to do with a lot of the newer social media, Snapchat and Vine when it was out there. I, I, I didn't need any of it for me. Um, I finally acquiesced and said, okay, I'm going to start making some TikTok videos because people kept you have to go where the people are. That's your audience. Go where the people are. And I... Uh, started that I made that video probably about a month a month and a half into getting on TikTok and it blew up and my coaching went from having two maybe three people a day to now capping it and now having to turn people away or raise my prices um it I could if I wanted to I could be coaching 24 7 at, because of TikTok because of the reach of TikTok. Um, you know, for all of the bad of it that's out there, I think that it can also be a very good tool. And it has allowed me to get in front of both Generation X, which has by far the worst pornography addictions, but it's also helped me get in front of the millennial and the Gen X women who tend to use social media. And a lot of them have never heard of the term betrayal trauma. A lot of them just think their husband or boyfriend is a creep for what he's done and don't understand that he has underlying issues and also you have underlying issues. Betrayal trauma is just a fancy 2023 way of saying my latest trauma from the last person I expected it from. Once I deal with the addiction with the addict, the treatment is largely the same. We all need to unpack 
All of those things that we carry with us that are painful. Trauma is just a fancy way of saying unresolved pain, lingering pain. How does that lingering pain affect you? And thankfully, I've been able to connect with that TikTok audience. Maybe it's because I have a 20-year-old son, I have a 24-year-old daughter, I know the age group, I know how to talk to the age group, I know the pop culture of the age group. I think that, you know, developmentally, I'm probably right around the maturity level of that age group. Um, I, it clicked. It clicked, and, and I don't know how the algorithm works. I have been trying to figure it out every day since. Sometimes I get a video that has a few million hits. Sometimes I get a video that can't scratch a thousand hits. I have no idea exactly why, but it has been the medium upon which uh, this has changed my professional life. And I know with now somewhere around 35 million total views of my videos, I know I've reached people. You know, I will not be surprised, Blake, if in three years somebody comes to me and says, I saw you on some guy Blake's podcast a few years ago. It was the first time I heard of you. And then I watched you on TikTok. And I didn't even think I had a problem then. I just liked porn. And in the last year, I've been thinking I've had a problem and I need to find this guy again. So I went and I found that podcast and I listened to it and I got the information again and I came to find you. These are stories I actually hear. If you go on to Amazon, you look at my first book, which was the biography basically of the last five years of my, my addiction, there is one scathing, scathing review on there. The person who wrote that six, seven years ago has been my longest tenured client. He wrote that because he was pissed off at me. He was pissed off that I dare get better. He was pissed off I dare say there's a solution. And then what did he do? He sucked it up and he bought the book. And he read it and he realized I was right and he reached out to me. And he was like the fourth person who became a client of mine. Still is to this day. And we still laugh about that. Because I, that's where he was at one point. He didn't know me. He hated me because of what I represented. So for some people, this does take a long time. This does take, you know, repeated viewings. That's why I'm still making videos every day. That's why, you know, I'm still doing podcasts all the time, along with, you know, trying to um, do the coaching as well and trying to get out there and, and, and get in front of crowds and talk about this. Uh, it's because we have to hit this from all angles until society grows the fuck up and is willing to talk about pornography, we're not going to be able to talk about pornography addiction. And with statistics like 91.5%, really recent statistic, 91.5% of men in this world who use the internet look at pornography at least once a month. 60.2% of women who use the internet worldwide look at pornography at least once a month. This doesn't mean that they're addicts. This just means that you are far more rare if you don't look at pornography online. Now, I know when it comes to admitting it, those numbers are going to be much lower, but that's where it is. That's where we are as a society, and we need to appreciate that and recognize, no, we're not going to get rid of pornography. I don't, I do not, I never claim to be anti-porn because that would be like banging your head against a wall. We could not outlaw alcohol in the U.S., what, 110 years ago. Dismal failure. You think with all of the technology we have today, we have any hope of ever eliminating porn? We don't, because sexuality and being interested in sexuality is a normal thing. It goes back to the beginning of time, especially in your formative teenage years when you're going through puberty. It doesn't make you a freak to wonder about it. It makes you very normal. But what we need to let people know is, unlike when I was out there and you had to score a magazine or you had to hope that you found a videotape, well, how many different devices can we carry around on ourselves that we have the greatest porn computers that have ever existed? And as soon as we give an 11-year-old a smartphone, well... We've just given them the greatest porn computer that's ever existed. 
Are we giving them any knowledge of what they're going to find on it? And the answer is no, because we still are so squeamish as a society. We are so unwilling to talk about this stuff as a society. This is at the top of the show. You talked about the uh, opioid crisis. I think that's a perfect correlation. I remember back in the 80s when Nancy Reagan was running around telling us to just say no. We all sort of decided as a society, drug users are kind of gross. They're from the wrong side of the tracks. They're troubled. You don't want to have anything to do with them. They're bad people. But my God, we knew the opioid crisis was happening then. You can go back and watch cop shows of the 60s and they're busting people for heroin. You can go back to some of the early hip-hop lyrics and they're talking about abusing Vicodin and other types of stuff. We knew this was here. It wasn't until, you know, the uh, late 20-teens, 2018, 2019, prior to the pandemic, people remember... Oh, the opioid crisis was the biggest cause celeb for all the for all the politicians because they, they it finally became good for their image to care about the opioid crisis. But it was a very reactive uh, stance to take. We should have been taking a strong stance thirty years earlier. Now, in twenty fifty, we are going to be a very ill society sexually. We're already starting to see some of these things. The rates of intercourse among teenagers is dropping, yet the rates of erectile dysfunction are skyrocketing. Something's going on there, and if we don't take care of this stuff, it's going to blow up. One of the biggest statistics uh, that I used to quote, and I, I guess I still will, uh, it's from 2017, so I, six years old, pre-pandemic. Uh, there was a group called the Barna Group, which was commissioned to do a study. They interviewed uh, a ton of, of young men, and the group that was 18 to 30 years old, almost 33% said that they either have a problem with pornography, believe they're developing an addiction, or have a full-blown addiction. Now, that is, that is self-diagnosis, so it's not always going to be 100% correct, but if one-third of the men under 30 years old in 2016 thought they had a problem, so that must mean that today one-third of the men under 37 believe they have a problem. And I bet it's even higher than that. What happens in 13 years? Is it going to be one-third of the men under 50? Probably, probably even worse. And the women will be catching up, and everybody else will be catching up. You know, we, if, if you have working sex organs... You are not safe from pornography. And we need to be able to grow up and pull this Puritan stick out of our ass and talk about what this stuff is. You and I have been talking about pornography for damn near an hour now. We haven't got super graphic once. You don't have to get graphic to discuss pornography. We all know what it is. But we need to be able to have the, the big boy and big girl discussions about what we should do moving forward and how we're going to protect future generations who we are just handing this technology to and saying, good luck. That's what we, that's what we really need to focus on. Yeah, I think the largest cohort of, of uh, pornography users is now the, the age 12 to 17 demographic. Yep. And something to the akin of... Um, the number of people, uh, number of single, both males and females now that have reported uh, no sexual contact in the last year is somewhere in the 30% range, uh, the last statistic I saw. So um, it's certainly not getting any it's better. It's starting to tell a story. I just hope people are willing to see that story. It's, it's similar to, I, I see this a lot if I'm out talking to a group, especially if there are parents in the group where, you know, you always have, well, you know what? We've got filters on our kids' phones. You've locked down one out of seven billion phones on this planet. Oh, thank you for taking care of the problem. It's not a matter of if your child is going to see pornography. It's a matter of when. And teaching your children about pornography is not the birds and the bees speech. 
teaching your children about pornography is like the speech about staying away from cigarettes. It's like the speech staying away from alcohol. We don't do this in this house, especially for kids. This is not good for kids. When you get older, you can make your own decisions, but right now, house rules, there is none of this stuff here. And you don't have to act like it's the biggest deal in the world. You know, my mom, when I was 10 years old, we had HBO, you know, one of the first families to have HBO. If Rambo or something super violent was on, that's fine. But oh my God, if a breast or a butt came across the screen, she came running from the other room to change the channel. It's okay to watch people get murdered, but God forbid they take their shirt off first. That's where the real problem is. And that's how my, that's how my age group was raised. And that is going to fuck with people's heads because I see it all through Gen X, how it's fucked with people's heads. What we need to do is be able to recognize that this is a substance that used incorrectly can cause health problems. So if people are going to use it, which we know they are because they have through history, there should be some warnings. There should be some education as to what the potential pratfalls of it are, about what the potential uh, downside to it is. Without judgment, without making it all graphic, just making it very matter of fact. And I think we're going to see our greatest drops in numbers of porn addicts, our greatest drops in number of people who consume pornography, if we would just start doing that. I think... Uh... I don't know what your opinions on Twitter are now since the, uh, the change in ownership, but I, I think your message would uh, resonate a lot with the cohort that I'm finding on there. So um, I, I, I got to tell you, I jumped you off to... of Facebook and I jumped off of Twitter when from my own mental well-being, I got to not follow the news. And that may make me a horrible citizen of the world, but... No, no, no. That makes you a much better citizen I, 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 well, I'm going to tell you, I was in the news industry for 25 years when I was ill. And now that I'm away from it, frankly, I, I know that my vote doesn't really count that much. I know that my opinion on abortion or Israel or death penalty or blah, blah, blah is not going to amount to a hill of beans. So I'm not going to invest in it. I'm not going to do what I might have done 15 years ago and spend two hours writing a position paper and posting it to Facebook because people need to know what I think and then we're going to straighten this out. No, you, 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 people were not going to change my opinion. I was not going to change other people's opinion. And every once in a while, if I'm reading Google News headlines or something, I still find myself getting a little bit perturbed. And I say, okay, step away, step away. And that's what you have to do. That's self-care. That self-love is knowing this is not going to be good in any way. So, yeah, I don't find myself on Twitter and I don't find myself on Facebook because they are just not healthy for me. And if I'm on TikTok or I'm on Instagram um, and I see something that I don't want to see or is not good for me, you are getting blocked immediately. If you say something stupid and attacking me on TikTok or Instagram or attacking another one of my users, um, I will just ban you. You don't get three strikes. You get zero strikes. The moment you fuck up, you're gone. Sorry. That's how I have to live my life now with certain boundaries, and I wish I would have done it a lot earlier because... I pissed away a lot of great years uh, being so wrapped up in my own shit, which included addiction. Do you think, uh, this is the last one for you, do you think some of the problems with the modern dating world or relationship world are an upstream or downstream consequence of uh, some of this unfettered access to porn? I think that the attitudes towards sexuality in intercourse are getting are becoming very toxic because of what we are learning in pornography um, I don't remember what the college was but they did a study a couple years ago they looked at a hundred videos uh, from each of the top two porn sites and they found that it was 97 or 98 percent of the videos the male 
was aggressive towards the female, either verbally or physically, in a way that went beyond simple consensual, this is okay. This same university asked college women, well, have you ever been in a situation like this? And 40% of the college women said that in a consensual sexual experience, they had experienced the man going too far because they're taking their cues from pornography. This is the sex ed of the 21st century. And we can say to kids all day long, this is not what sex is like. And for those of us who have had normal, healthy sexual relationships, we know that pornography is fiction. We know that you most of us can't bend in those ways. I, ironically, now know a handful of porn stars because of my TikTok. And they love what I do. And they, they have told me, there's, there's one woman whose name is very well known out there, who has told me, you keep telling people that this is fake. You keep telling people that the 10-minute scene they're watching took us eight hours. You keep telling people that that you know, money shot at the end never even happened that day. He had to go back for reshoots, and it wasn't even me who was there at the time. It's all Hollywood magic. It's fiction. It's not a documentary. It's not a reality show. We need to get that across to the youngest people in a way that we are not doing. Because they're taking their cues from this, and what we're actually seeing now, and when I've been on college campuses, I, if I'm talking to a group of women, I always make sure to ask this, because it's fascinating, is there are so many young women who do not want to have intercourse with a virgin male because they know that that guy is going to have to be deprogrammed and trained how to be a human and not a porn star because that's where they've taken all of their cues from. They think, oh, well, she's going to let me have sex with her. I guess this is the point where I push her onto the bed and call her a bitch. No, no, there was never the time for that, my friend. But it's happening out there because of the messages that are being delivered by porn. When people say, why is porn... Okay, I'm not an addict. Why is porn bad? Porn is giving the youngest uh, views about sexuality that are just not congruent to the world that we live in. And they don't understand that because they haven't been around enough to experience it. Well, I'm thankful for the work that you're doing, and uh, you. I, I I appreciate what you're doing to educate the next generation here. And 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 uh, if people want to get in touch with you or uh, find your stuff, where should we send them? Yeah, uh, TikTok and Instagram. My handle is that corn coach. If you've been on either of those, you know you're not allowed to write the word porn because oh my God, what will happen to you if you write the word porn? So we have adopted, and this is as a society online, the word corn means porn. So I am that corn coach on both Instagram and TikTok. And if you're looking for any other information from me about my books, about my coaching, you can visit uh, the uh, P, P, that's the letter P is in porn, paddictrecovery.com. That's my website um, where you can learn anything else about me that you need. I'm not a difficult guy to find. Perfect. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate your time, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Blake. I appreciate it.